Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the big local and state stories that you may have missed. Stories like these. The city missed the deadline for approving a new map for all 50 Chicago wards. The vote was called off today. We've been warning that anything short of a rigorous and transparent remap process in public view will lead to an irresponsible and costly referendum. 34th Ward Alderman Carrie Austin says she won't seek re-election in 2023. Carrie Austin is under federal indictment for allegedly taking bribes from a developer that sought business in her ward. City of Chicago dropping its lawsuit against the Fraternal Order of Police over the vaccine reporting mandate. With me for those stories and more, Brandis Friedman, co-anchor and correspondent of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, and Greg Hines. He covers politics for Crane's Chicago business. Greg, we'll start with you. We had chaos at city council this week as the once a decade ward redistricting deadline came and went what's the backstory and and where do things stand at this moment yeah chaos is a good word for it Um, every 10 years under the constitution uh, each legislative body needs to reapportion itself to take into account changes in population Uh, the state legislature did that earlier this year uh, in regard to state legislative maps and congressional maps and now it's time for the city council to do it And the problem is that population changes in Chicago uh, have changed the nature of the city, and not everybody is in agreement on how the new map should reflect that. Uh, Latinos are now the largest ethnic group in the city after whites, with blacks in third place, but African Americans have had more wards here traditionally than Latinos have had, and the Latinos want to change that. And the question is how we do that and how nasty it gets. Uh, It's it's starting to get nasty, but uh, they have time to work it out, but they certainly didn't work it out this week. Yeah. Well, and just so we're clear, for those who aren't familiar with the process, Greg, why are these ward boundaries so important? Because they determine who gets to make the decisions about, you know, you, you, if you have a complaint about your property taxes being too high or the police service in your neighborhood is bad or economic development, there's no jobs. Well, that all goes to City Hall. And while the mayor has a lot of power in this town, uh, the, the city council has a lot of power, too, if they choose to use it. So we're determining who gets to make the laws and set the policies. And if it's a bunch of folks that don't represent you but represent someone else, you're going to be upset about it. Yeah. Asian Americans were pushing hard for an Asian American majority ward. Were they successful? Um, We don't know yet because we don't know what the final map is going to be, but I think they've all but won that battle. Uh, There are uh, three maps on the table at the moment. One comes from uh, the Latino Caucus. Another one comes from an independent group called the People's Map. And then the third map comes from the uh, City Council Rules Committee with the majority of the black aldermen backing that. All three of them now have a ward that is majority Asian in the Bridgeport area. So I think we won't know for sure exactly what it's going to be until it's done, but I think that And there were a lot of detailed rules about how this redistricting gets done and what could lead to a referendum. So where are we now? 
Okay. Under the rules, if you pass a map before December the 1st uh, and it has a majority and it's signed by the mayor, it's okay. But not having passed a map by December the 1st, and a different rule comes into play. And that rule says that uh, uh, any group of 10 aldermen can offer their own map and ask for a referendum on it. And the Latinos now have done just that. But that's not a final deadline either. If all sides finally put down their fighting and sit down and agree, and 41 aldermen sign on an OMF, the referendum will go bye-bye. That hasn't happened yet, though. There's some reasons to think maybe it's not. Uh, like I said, there's time for reasonable people to work this out. But if not, it would appear that you next June, that the people of Chicago will decide between a map that is pretty much drawn up by the Latino caucus and one and an alternate map that has a majority of the black caucus supporting it. But it's time to avoid that. Well, Brandis, amid all of this chaos, longtime Southside Alderwoman Carrie Austin announced that she is not going to be seeking re-election. So bring us up to speed on her situation. Right. So I think, you know, a lot of us recall that she's facing a federal indictment. But, you know, there's been some questions about her level of activity, you know, over the years, right? I think when Mayor Lightfoot came into office, uh, she did not opt to keep Carrie Austin as was the head of the, the budget, the chair of the budget committee. Instead, you know, she created this contracting oversight and equity committee, asked Carrie Austin um, to remain as the head of that. And I'm going to come back to that committee in just a second. But her ward is among those that is being completely redrawn. Alderperson for the 34th ward which is being potentially shifted to a different community. And so she has said that, you know, she's sort of like, she's not going to run again, you know, because of the, the remapping process. She'll sacrifice herself for the map because the areas, the neighborhoods that she currently represents are going to be absorbed by other wards. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this has nothing to do with all of the other issues that she is facing, that this had been part of the plan anyway. Maybe that's true, but it's still a bit convenient, I'd say. Um, But that one committee that she does head, the Committee on Contracting Oversight and Equity, over the summer, uh, WTTW News, my colleague Heather Sharon reported that that committee barely met and still spent almost all of its money. And, you know, you compare that to very busy committees like the Finance and the Budget Committee that managed to come in, you know, slightly under budget um, and, you know, and actually have a bunch of meetings. And so over the summer, she resigned as committee chair uh, from that particular committee. So I don't know if some of that is just, you know, she's always had one foot out the door. You know, she will probably say that, you know, she's always been committed to the people of her ward. But yeah, she said that she's not going to run for re-election and things are going to look different. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with the map redraw as well. Yeah. Greg, what's Mayor Lightfoot been saying about this whole map process. Uh, the mayor's been in a really interesting position here, uh, Sasha. She caught some hate because she wasn't in town for the showdown meeting on December 1st and said she was in Washington. Um, her explanation for that, I think it generally makes sense, is that, hey, i uh, I got to get money from Washington for all kinds of things in this meeting. And, you know, I had important meetings with Nancy Pelosi and Susan Rice and other VIPs set up long ago, and I couldn't just walk away from it. Her general position is that, well, this is up to the city council to resolve, you know. I don't want to get terribly involved. But this is Chicago. We're used to having a really strong mayor and a force that kind of forces issues and gets things done. And the mayor clearly has some some interest here. If you look real carefully at the map that came out of the Rules Committee, some of her opponents, uh, some of her harshest critics, Gil Viegas from the 36th Ward or Alderman Rosa from the 35th Ward, they get really, really awful wards. If you think that the mayor didn't have anything to do with it, well, let's say there are some people a little skeptical of that view. So the question is, if the standoff between the blacks and the Latinos continues, this is 
is not good for the city. It could get really ugly. So the mayor has will have not only political reasons, but civic reasons to get involved and get this done. So I think she's the real key person to watch. Uh, she'll probably do it mostly behind the scenes. Uh, she doesn't want to appear to be a boss, but uh, uh, I think part of her job now is to resolve situations like this. Back to you, Greg. Uh, while aldermen were fighting over their wards, the mayor was in Washington. What was she doing in D.C.? She was there in search of money, uh, which is a good thing for us in Chicago. Um, uh, as we all know, the uh, uh, Congress recently approved a huge infrastructure bill uh, that has a lot of money in it, potentially for Chicago and Illinois. It's uh, concerning a, a different soft infrastructure bill, a human infrastructure bill, that uh, if it gets out of the Senate will be approved. Earlier in the year, there was a bunch of money appropriated for COVID relief. Now, some of that comes in the door automatically. It's formula money, to use the Washington phrase. But a lot of it is, is competitive. You have to bid for it. And when you bid for money in Washington, human relations always become part of it. You want to go in and make your best case. Uh, you want to talk to the right person and smile at them the right way. Nobody can do that more authoritatively than the mayor. So that's what she was out there, I think, largely doing. And I wish her su for success. I mean, you know, they don't need all the money in Texas and in Georgia. We could do some of that up here in Chicago. Yeah. Well, well, Brandis, Mayor Lightfoot also announced that the city would be dropping its lawsuit against the police union that was over the vaccine mandate noncompliance. What's the latest there? Right. So the city says that, you know, enough of the uh, police officers have come into compliance with the requirement to just report their status, right, whether or not they're vaccinated. You know, I think as of earlier this week, that was up to 87 uh, percent we reported that have disclosed their vaccination status, which was a big increase from mid-October. Um, and the reason the city had initially brought that suit was because uh, they felt that the uh, Fraternal Order of Police, the police union, uh, President John Catanzara, had been telling officers not to do so, basically to disobey their boss, the city, and to not comply with that because he and surely some other people felt that, uh, that the city couldn't do that. The city couldn't force you to get a vaccine or to disclose your vaccine status, but apparently enough officers officers have uh, made decisions for themselves uh, and opted to give that information. And even if they don't, like the judge has still put a hold on the requirement that they have to get vaccinated by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, I think for those who are not vaccinated, I think they do have to submit to testing um, in order to keep working. So, I mean, I think thus far about 86 employees are on no pay status. Let's pivot to statewide politics. Greg, the majority leader in the House, uh, which is a Chicago Northside Democrat, Greg Harris, announced that he's also not seeking re-election. What was his reason? I think Greg essentially concluded that, hey, after many years in Springfield, uh, it was just time you know, for a new challenge to move on a little bit. Um, he's denying that uh, he and the new speaker, uh, uh, Chris Welch, uh, had any problems together. So I'll take Greg at his word. And, and if I could add on a personal note, I think he's a real loss. Um, Greg was the, uh, the, the author of the state's same-sex marriage bill. He was a, uh, an expert on the fiscal and budget kind of things that uh, really are the mother's milk of Springfield. He was very widely respected on both sides of the aisle. And what particularly struck me is, you know, in a town where where all kinds of leaders and, uh, are, are making money on the side because they're property tax lawyers like Mike Madigan was uh, or uh, they have a law practice or whatever, yeah. Gray Harris was a legislator. He, he didn't walk away from that job. Rich, God bless. We need more people like that in Springfield. You wrote a detailed rundown this week of, of what the lineup looks like for the statewide elections next November. Give us the highlights. What are some of the more competitive races? 
Well, on the Democrat side, there's a lot of competition, um, and you do have a Republican candidate, uh, uh, Ms., uh, Representative Brady, but you don't have Republican candidates yet against uh, Democrat incumbents who are seeking a, a new term. Uh, that would include Kwame Rule, the Attorney General, uh, Susanna Mendoza, the Comptroller. Uh, I think we're going to get a candidate next week against Mike Furrick, the State Treasurer, and Tom Demmer, another Republican. But the real question is, what's going to happen with the Republican candidates for mayor? So far, the candidates who are running uh, pretty much fighting over the Republican base uh, and who can out-Trump each other. Uh, there are a lot of moderate Republicans who are scratching their head and saying, hey, we're not going to win with that. But they haven't found a candidate yet. If they have a potential big money backer in Ken Griffin, the hedge fund mogul here, who has promised to bankroll somebody. But uh, he's not going to blow his money on a loser. The question is, can they find a moderate who would appeal to both voters mm -hmm. uh, and Mr. Griffin and make it out of the primary in a Republican party that's gone away to the political right? Well, Brandis, uh, switching gears here, the, the trial of actor Jesse Smollett, who is accused of staging a hate crime against himself, that's continued to make news. So what's been happening? Okay, so this week the prosecution presented uh, presented its case, um, and then I think they rested, you know, just yesterday. And the defense, I think, is, or did the defense get started yesterday? But they're not in court today. It's resuming on Monday. And of course, you know, the prosecution has made the case that Smollett staged the whole thing, that he paid um, a pair of uh, brothers, both of whom were, you know, sort of involved with the production of the show, um, that he paid them to beat him up. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was that winter of 2019, because he felt like he received some hate mail and that the show, the studio, wasn't taking it very seriously, and the prosecution is making it seem as though he had this whole thing staged uh, to get the attention, basically, to advance his career, and that he promised uh, the Osendaro brothers that if they did this, that he would be able to help them out with their own careers. Um, I think each of them was also interested in, you know, taking on a bigger role, um, and so <laughs> yeah. that, that's where we are at this point. Yikes, not looking good. That's WTTW's Brandis Friedman and Greg Hines of Crane's Chicago Business. And don't go away. There's plenty more where that came from, including these stories. The Omicron variant was only first detected in the United States on Wednesday. Now, two days later, cases are being tracked in five states, and Governor Pritzker suspects it's likely already here in Illinois. The city's top doc says it's only a matter of time, really, before that new variant arrives in Chicago. I'm concerned about it. No, the sky is not falling, but we need to be serious, and we need to get people vaccinated now. Arrested twice. Former Chicago Park District lifeguard supervisor, 32-year-old Mauricio Ramirez, is facing new felony charges for criminal sexual assault and aggravated criminal sexual abuse. All right, let's turn to COVID because we have to. Sadly, Illinois is experiencing a COVID surge. More than 11,000 new cases were reported in a 24-hour period on Thursday. That's the highest daily number for this year. What are you hearing, Brandis? You know, we just had uh, Dr. Allison Arwady on uh, the program last evening, and, you know, just as in that sound that you just played of her, you know, it sounds like obviously officials are taking this seriously. It has not been reported yet in Illinois, but that the public health officials here are on the lookout for it. It sounds like what they're really advising people to do is that if you're due for your booster, get that booster, though we still don't yet know, you know, how effective the vaccine is going to be against Omicron, just because there's still a lot about it that scientists don't know. 
know. It's expected that within a couple of weeks, I think they're hoping to know more about it. You know, how effective the vaccine will be. Is it much more transmissible? Um, does it make you sicker? Uh, because it sounds like that increase that you just mentioned, you know, this 11,000 cases that yeah. we've, you know, tracked in just that one day are mostly the unvaccinated. And so they're still, you know, advising folks to get that vaccine um, and to get your booster if it's time for that. Because uh, if your immunity has been reduced from those original doses, then you want to be sure that you're armed up against whatever this new thing is. Yeah, only one in seven have gotten the uh, booster shot in this state. So given all of that, Brandis, did you get any sense so far as to how prepared the Chicago region is for Omicron? Honestly, no. only because and that's you know we've talked to like three doctors we're just gonna wing it when it arrives (laughs) yeah that's what we're doing um and and and, you know we've spoken with three you know professionals this week uh about this about this very thing including dr already last night and a couple of others earlier this week and i think we are only as prepared as we've already been right i think the hope is that um folks will heed advice and that they will get the vaccine i i haven't heard that you know based on reporting from all of our colleagues that our icus are overwhelmed um because you know last time this happened we did not have the vaccine right um and while the icus i think i saw uh, one of our reporters tweet that you know are in the 80 percent range as far as being full but they are not necessarily full with covid patients so I, i think they want to avoid that happening by advising people to get their vaccine Greg, you had a story this week that was about a a local congressman who's pushing for the U.S. to actually spend more money to help low-income countries get their citizens vaccinated. What are the details there? Uh, yeah, you're, you're referring to Congressman Rajiv Krishnamurthy from the Northwest Suburbs Democrat. Uh, he makes the point that uh, while talking about America first and we're only going to take care of ourselves makes a certain point. Uh, it's popular with some people. In reality, it's a very small globe, as we've just found out again with this Omicron. Very uh, None of us have heard about it two weeks ago, and boom, it just absolutely exploded, and everybody's worried about when it's going to get here. Uh, and his point is that, hey, in an era of globalization where people travel all over the place, if you don't protect everybody, you don't protect anybody because ultimately it's going to spread. Uh, so he wants us to put more money, American money, into helping low-income countries get their uh, population vaccinated. He says, hey, this reminds me of the situation when Delta first came around. He started talking about his relatives in India who were dying mm-hmm. uh, because they hadn't been vaccinated. That's what started him. He says, now we see the same thing with Omicron. It's coming out of South Africa. Who knows how bad that's going to be or whether there's going to be another one. So, you know, let's take care of everybody because if you don't, eventually it's going to come back and bite you. And the State Board of Education released the scores from last spring's standardized tests. How did the pandemic impact learning, Brandis? You know, what they released, I think it was probably what a lot of us could have expected, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I, was, I was covering my face as I read that question, <laughs> thinking of my own kids and, and how, absolutely. how badly well, uh, last year went. Yeah, Absolutely. And I remember even last year, my own son having to take a standardized test from home. And he was in second grade at the time, so it's not one of the ones that is be measured in this set of test results that have just come out. But I know how much he struggled, right? And so when you look at uh, the decline for these students, and I don't recall the exact numbers, but it is evident that students across all of the demographics did not perform as well as they did in 2019, which was the last time the tests were administered because they weren't given in 2020. Um, And I think we're expecting another set of test results in the spring from tests that were taken, uh, I think, this fall. You know, 
the test rate, the, the number of students who actually took the test, that fell as well. And I think, I think that's just as telling, right? Because if the students weren't engaged enough to even take the test, mm-hmm. you can imagine um, they were probably struggling with a bunch of things at home. Uh, and obviously there were the parents who just said, you know what, we're not going to do this. We're not going to stress you out any further than you already are, considering all that students are dealing with. So I think we saw this coming, right? And yeah. would have been surprised if students had done amazing. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. It seems, though, that the youngest students, though, were the ones that struggled the most. Uh, yes, it was the younger ones that struggled the most, and I, I think that shouldn't be much of a surprise either um, because we're talking about third grade levels, and we know what parents had to deal with, um, especially for those, for those younger kids. Chicago Public Schools also made news this week. Uh, they're making their bathrooms gender neutral. What's CPS saying? Right. So CPS tweeted this um, in a video from uh, two, uh, I don't remember their titles, but from their Title IX office at Chicago Public Schools. I also thought it was interesting that this was delivered via tweet um, yeah. and not, you I know. I think I got an email. Uh, did you get an email? Earlier this week, yeah. Okay, as a, as a I'm CPS on the CPS list and I didn't see that email, but that's probably more about me. Well, I got, I got it from one of my kids' schools, so they were proactive and sent us an email, but the other child's school hasn't done it, and CPS hasn't either. So, yeah, you would but, think that the district would have, you know, communicated that, you know, sort of district-wide. Nevertheless, the news is out there that uh, the district has decided to um, require all schools by um, December 1st, which was two days ago, to post signage, clarifies that all of the bathrooms are gender neutral, and the signage reads something to the effect of, you know, it's the girls' bathroom, so those who are comfortable using the girls' bathroom then this bathroom is for you, basically. And so uh, in the video that they tweeted, there's a sign above the girls' room that says girls plus, and likewise for the boys' room. And, you know, a bunch of, depending on what that bathroom is or what that bathroom has inside of it, um, a bunch of different signage outside letting you know whether or not this is the bathroom that you want to access. So, you know, signage that says it has stalls and urinals or, you know, multiple stalls or a single stall so that students can make the choice about which bathroom uh, feels right for them. So that's, that's a new thing that they're starting Uh, rolling out from Title IX to be more inclusive um, and also in compliance with, I think, some federal requirements. Greg, there were a couple of business stories this week that we wanted to look at. First off, United announcing that it's moving operations staff, which is about 900 people from the Willis Tower out to Arlington Heights. What's the significance of that move? Well, two things. Uh, United has some particular reasons to do it. There's some logistical reasons why, to be, why you want to be close to the airport. But it's uh, at a time when when portions of downtown Chicago are struggling to come out of COVID. People are still a little reluctant to go into the office. It's not very helpful uh, for a big employer to move a bunch of jobs. Now, United insists they're still going to keep 2,500 here. It's still going to be their, uh, their headquarters. But uh, it puts more pressure on a uh, particularly central loop office market, the uh, full market areas doing much better, but it puts more pressure on, on buildings that have a lot of vacancies. The vacancy rate has been going up, uh, and they're trying to deal with higher taxes because they're all being reassessed now by Fritz Kage, the county assessor, and tending to see big increases there, too. So it's kind of a double whammy, and this doesn't help. Now, in other airline news, Greg, you, you wrote a story about the new runway at O'Hare. Yeah, if we can talk about good news for a change. Yes, um, <laughs> please. Uh, we, we, we can do that, can't we? Yes. Um, almost 20 years ago, uh, then-Governor George Ryan and then-Mayor Richard M. Daley struck a deal that to finally lift the blockade on new runways at O'Hare. Well, golly gee, the last of them it was finally opened up for operation by the FAA this week was an extension that already has resulted in operational efficiencies uh, at O'Hare. There's not the kind of delays that once occurred all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a companion 
piece of that, which is a eight and a half billion dollar plan to rebuild and add new uh, new terminals at O'Hare because they haven't been modernized essentially since, uh, with one exception, since the airport was built. Uh, that's in the advanced planning stages now. And when that gets up and done, we should have a, a airport that, instead of being a pediment, is can fully be uh, the the popular economic magnet it was it was intended to be. Good news. Is there travel? nearing pre-pandemic levels at this point? It's getting there. I've actually got a uh, long interview later today with uh, Jamie Reed, the city's transportation commissioner, and that's on the top of the list. Last time I looked, it was something like 60-70% of normal. Not what it was. I mean, uh, if Omicron isn't bad and disappears, I think the recovery will continue. If it gets worse, um, the, the numbers will be worse. Uh, if you know what's going to happen, tell me. I'd like to plan my vacation. <laughs> yeah, if Omicron doesn't scare travelers away again. Right. Um, You wrote another story this week, too, Greg. It was about uh, Illinois' unemployment and jobs recovery. What did you find out? Uh, What we found out is that uh, uh, the recovery here is a little slower uh, than in some other states. We are recovering, but we're still uh, uh, well below what we were before the pandemic. Some of that probably has to do with the nature of our economy. Uh, We have more... uh, hospitality and tourism, hotel kinds of things that they still haven't recovered. The convention business certainly has recovered. There's a lot of jobs involved there. And my Republican friends would also say it has to do with state fiscal and tax policies that put us at an economic disadvantage. Um, there's some reason to think this could uh, be temporary. Uh, Illinois historically recovers late from economic recessions, uh, but we're going to have to find out. At the moment, the facts are that why we are recovering. Uh, the recovering is not quite as good as it is in some other states. Any certain industry or sector where where job growth is lagging uh, in Chicago? I think it's hospitality and tourism in particular, retail to some extent. Uh, On the other hand, other sectors are doing real good. We uh, we referenced a minute ago what's happening on the Fulton Market area on the near west side, uh, which has become a real tech hotspot. There's lots of announcements there all the time of of new office buildings and uh, residential structures and so forth. That's doing well. Brandis, the Chicago Park District lifeguard program continues to make headlines uh, with a former supervisor who was charged with assaulting a second underage victim. What's the latest on this lifeguard scandal? Right. So he uh, was arrested on again on Tuesday because he is out on bond for you know the charges that were brought against him when this whole thing initially came to light. What we know is that I think the charges date back to oh, 2014, 2016. I'm not exactly right on that, but it's it's a completely different case. Basically, um, he was allegedly uh, sexually assaulting um, a young woman who reported to him at the time. I think they met. It began at a party, and then he would you know use it against her basically. You know, he would sexually assault her. I don't know to the degree of that, but then if she refused, he would make her work long hours, but uh, if she complied, then, you know, longer lunch breaks um, because it's being reported by your colleagues, um, Sasha, that he was having sex with this underage girl who was 16, 17 years old at the time several times a week. Um, And so he is facing additional charges um, because after all of this came to light, more uh, alleged victims have begun coming forward um, and reporting their stories. Yeah, WBEZ's Dan Mahalopoulos, as we know, has been on this story from the very beginning. So you can find, of course, the latest updates on WBEZ.org. Uh, but uh, quick question, Brandis, on this. It, you know, the Park District announced that it's going to spend $600,000 on a, a new sexual abuse prevention unit. Uh, do we have any details yet on what that might look like? 
I think there are some details. I think it's intended to, you know, prevent and investigate sexual assault, supporting some victims. Um, and this is all coming from the interim CEO, Rosa Escareño. Um, and she's also said that, you know, the, the Park District is going to push back the hiring of lifeguards for next summer so that they can conduct, you know, a lot of intensive training. I think, you know, that is for the staff that they currently have because obviously you can't expect them to do better if you don't train them to do better, because this has obviously been going on for some time. And, Sasha, like, one thing that, like, as I'm watching this whole story unfold and the response that is happening, it reminds me of, you know, this exact same thing happening with Chicago Public Schools, you know, two, three years ago, just as Janice Jackson was coming in to be, I guess it was more like three or four years ago, yeah. as Janice Jackson was coming in to be uh, the CEO of Chicago Public Schools. You know, it had all been going on, and, you know, just the systems of democracy had been failing the victims the entire time, and so there's this big response creating a new um, internal department that is going to uh, basically check all of this and prevent it from happening and make sure that training happens and investigate it. And so it is unfortunate that it is happening again, you know, in a completely different department, and I wonder if it's sort of a wake-up call for any other city agency, you know, check yourselves, and because it may be going on, because it's happened in these two different uh, city agencies, and they're having to respond uh, similarly. Well, in the seconds I have left here, give me a brief synopsis of of what you're going to be following in the coming days. You first, Brandis. Oh, in the coming days, I'm definitely keeping my eye out uh, for Omicron and what is it going to do. Aren't we all? Aren't we all, right? Part of my reasons are a little bit selfish because I would like to plan a vacation, like Greg said. (laughs) I'd like to know if it's going to be canceled, but I think everybody is going to be keeping their eye on that and kind of uh, wondering what's happening. What are you paying attention to, Greg? Um, the latest developments in Washington, Sasha, um, the second part of Biden's uh, big uh, rebuild plan is still up for a vote. We've got a, 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 a extending the federal debt limitation on uh, the use of political hijinks back and forth. That's where I'm looking. That's it for the weekly news recap. I want to thank Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business and Brandis Friedman of WTTW Chicago tonight. Thanks for stopping by to talk news and politics with me. That's it for the weekly news recap. It's been a historic week in the news. Changes may be coming that will impact American society for decades to come. To follow the tide of history and to dive deep into the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we hope your holiday season continues to be filled with joy and peace. Come back soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.